0: Good morning. How y'all doing? I get, I'm getting it now, right? I'm working on it for Austin. I, I, told, I mentioned this morning, we had neighbors, they went Ewens. They didn't quite get the y'all part. They, how Ewan's doing? That's pretty funny. Hey, what do you think about this? I read just recently where the average person thinks that a really good sermon is one that goes over their head and lands on their neighbor. (laughs) Is that true? Look at your neighbor. You're all neighbors. (laughs) Ron Moffat asked me something I shared with the group this morning. Ron asked me last week, he says, okay, you getting ready for this sermon? I said, yeah, I'm working on it. He says, well, you're going to hit them with bricks? Slash them with whips or throw marshmallows at them? That was a strange question, but it's kind of funny. I said, Well, I don't do marshmallows. Besides, they can't fire me. I don't work here. <laughs> so, there was a, a time where the evangelist D.L. Moody was, was filling in to speak at a particular church. And they came up to him before the service and said, we just want you to be aware that in this church, a lot of the congregants leave before the end of the sermon. And we don't want you to be upset by that. We just want you to know that that might happen. Thank you, he said, I'll, I'll consider that. So he got up and he, he got ready to preach. And he says, now I'm going to speak to two classes of people today, sinners and saints. And so he began to preach. And he went along for a while, and finally he stopped, and he says, Okay, I'm done preaching to the sinners. Now I'm going to preach to the saints so all you sinners can leave. Well, this was the first time in that long time that no one left that church during the sermon. There was a, a story told about Uh, an event at the First Baptist Church. Now, it wasn't this one, because I don't think, maybe we have done coffee and cookies. I don't remember. Do we ever have coffee and cookie fellowship? I don't think it happened here, but it happened at a First Baptist Church, and the the preacher went pretty long one day. In fact, real long. But when they got done, they had their fellowship time afterwards with the coffee and the cookies, and he was there enjoying a cookie, speaking to a family that he was meeting with. And they had a seven-year-old boy there. And he says, son, do you know why we have coffee after church? Yes, sir, he says, I think so. And so you can get everybody awake so they can drive home safely. <laughs> <laughs> trying to figure out what you're going to talk about. You know, it's kind of as an aside. Trying to think about what you're not supposed to be thinking about when you're trying to play music is something, too. I'll tell you that. We start thinking about what I'm going to say and when I should be paying attention to what I'm going to play. I got most of the notes. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Barry. (laughs) Um, So I started out, I really like Matthew chapter 24, and that's where I was headed originally. And I'm not sure why I like it so much other than it It's kind of mysterious in some ways. Jesus talks to his disciples about end times, about problems they're going to face. But I got stopped. I didn't get very far. Now, I've read this chapter a bunch of times, and I really like it, especially the way Matthew sets it up. Now, whether this happened in a contiguous time frame, I don't know. But certainly there was a time where Jesus confronted the religious rulers of the day and he called them vipers and other things and then the disciples point out at some point they're pointing out the, the great temple and how, how great it is and Jesus tells them there's not going to be one stone left upon another so obviously they're concerned so they go to him and ask him well whens this going to happen when this, this has got to be the end of the age when, when is this going to happen when will you return And he says something, That I really found very interesting, and this is what stopped me. And Jesus answered them and said, "See that no one leads you astray." That's from the ESV. I I like the NIV better. It says the same thing, but it says it in a different way. Jesus said, "Watch out that no one deceives you." Now, why would he say that? Watch out. That no one deceives you. Obviously, somebody's going to try to deceive people. And later, he goes on and he talks about a period of time <clears throat> about, in, in uh, <clears throat> excuse me, John chapter 8, he talks about, eight. he talks about a period of time in Matthew as well, as where it's going to be so deceiving that, if possible, even the elect could be deceived. Now that's most likely during the tribulation time, but that deception is going to ramp up as you get closer and closer to that time, and if you're not aware of the deception that's going on, you're not paying attention, because the deception that's being used to the lies that are being told right now is growing unbelievably. In fact, there were some public libraries that were banning the Bible because it was too divisive. And there's been some conflict over that back and forth. Some of them had to reinstate it. I'm not sure if they all did or not. So we know there's a problem. We know that deceiving can take place. And Jesus warns, watch out. Talks about it, the devil. He describes him. But in Matthew chapter four, some scriptures call it the temptation test- of Jesus. Others call it the testing of Jesus. And I want to take a day. So, if we could, let's stand as we read. The fourth chapter of Matthew, starting with the first verse. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Days and forty nights he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him for a very, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus to overcome any temptation, to become sinless, to be our Savior, to be that perfect lamb, that sacrifice. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these people that have come together to hear your word. We just uh, want to honor and praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Deception. Jesus talks about deception. And we're going to see how the devil works in some of the areas because they very much affect the way It works with us. Now, notice the beginning of this passage Jesus is in the wilderness. That wilderness is uh, a desolate, nasty, rocky desert. Wild animals at that time, a lot more than today. A dangerous place. He's alone and he doesn't have any food for 40 days. Now, I don't think I've ever gone longer than four days without food. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine 40 days. So he's tired. He's lonely. But who brings him for this this time? The Spirit brings him. Why? Why would the Spirit be bringing him for this temptation? I mean, he's Jesus. What's the point? That's what we want to look at. He starts out, if you are the Son of God. Doesn't, doesn't Satan know who he is? will not you imagine he knows who he is? I'm sure they had some history prior to him coming to Earth when Satan decided, I'm going to be like the Most High. He wanted to be like God, and they threw him out. So I would imagine that he had some history with him. Why would he say, if you are the son of God? He knows who he is. He's heard God speak at when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. So he knows who he is. But look at the implication Perhaps it's something different than we might at first think. If you are the son of God, what are you doing in this condition, in this place? You're hungry. Turn these stones to bread. You can do it. You have the power, the ability. It's not sinful to turn stones to bread. Do it. Hey, if God loved you, he would not put you in this situation. Does that sound familiar? If God loved me, I would not be in this spot. I would have what I want. And that's what he's done and trying to do. Here, the deception is great. It's kind of the deception that he used on Eve and Adam. Did God really say? And you could be like God knowing good from evil. Look how he works. The if. He knows who he is. So then he takes him to a holy city and sets him up. Hmm. Let's take a look at something, though, what Jesus says about Satan. Later in John, I want to look at that briefly, because before we get to the city, we're going to learn a little more, starting with, in the eighth chapter of John, starting with 42nd verse, and Jesus is having a discussion, maybe it's more than that. But the religious leaders are drawing their connection to Abraham. So Abraham, and we're connected to Abraham. Therefore, we have a special place with God. We don't know who you are. We know who we are. And Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Because you cannot bear to hear my word. You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and a father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Why is it This is something that really has puzzled me because I've really seen this. Why is it it seems so much easier for people to believe a lie than to believe the truth? Have you noticed that? It is easier for some reason. Perhaps that's because of our nature. I don't know. I dealt with that a lot. During my career. People willing to believe a lie. For some reason. So now. The next test. The devil took him to the holy city. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him. If you are the son of God. Throw yourself down. Why would he want to do that? Now. Some, some scholars have suggested that the high point of the temple and the valley below, some 450 feet or something like that, if you were to jump, Satan says the angels will come, they'll pick you up, they'll protect you. What's this test about? What's he trying to get him to do? Leap! You're the Son of God. You don't deserve the situation you're in. Some have suggested, well, maybe he's going to leap. The idea was for him to leap and show everybody that he's the Messiah. Maybe. I doubt it. More than likely, it's just a matter of trust yourself. Put God on a spot. Presume upon God. Leap. Jump. God will protect you. This is a a, a challenging situation because you don't have to go to the cross. You can eliminate that. We'll see a little more about that in the next temptation. Doubt God's goodness, but put a test on him. God says one place in Scripture that you can test him. And that has to do with tithing. It's the only place we're allowed to do that. In some churches today, one of the things we have to be careful with as a band, and we do talk about it, and we've had some songs we've had to put aside and not use, even though they, musically they got a great beat and a great rhythm, and, but the words aren't right. Are they honoring to God? Are they more about self? One of the things in years past, I had some training in identifying cults and cult worship. And what concerns me is I still have memories of some of those films that we watched, watching their worship sessions. And we have to be careful because I have seen some churches today if you're just looking at the two side by side, I can't see the difference. Now, the one would say, "Well, well, we're worshiping God." But are they? Is the message really about God, or is it about feeling emotionally high, feeling good about something, and yay? Look at look at I'm excited, and if I don't get this worship high, then I didn't get to worship. Because worship is about who. Who are we worshiping? So. As a band, one of the things I've challenged the band is this next month. Separately, we're going to review biblical um, passages that relate to worship and get a really good feel. What's what's worship mean? If we're going to lead worship, we need to, to be right about it, and we are conscious of that. But you have to be careful because there's a line where you can go too far, and it is not honoring to God. And I've seen some of that that disturbs me. Now I love the music we do. I love, I love the way Josh leads the music. I, I love the way he gets into it. But we do talk about it. And we do have to be careful because we want it to be honoring to God and that you and you as you are worshiping, you are honoring God. It's not about us. Back to the the pinnacle and the jump. Leap and presume you'll be protected. Never in Scripture does it allow for presumptuous and reckless actions based in foolishness. Demanding miraculous protection as proof of God's care is wrong. Now, if we're in God's will, he's going to to help us, whatever he allows. But if we're outside of God's will, he might just say, you're on your own although he's unbelievable in extending grace in so many instances. But demanding miraculous protection is wrong. Contrast that with the appropriate attitude of trust and obedience. How many times do Christians presume on God and make decisions concerning relationships, finances, business transactions, other decisions which are contrary to his word? I've seen people make those bad choices. Always has a bad outcome. And then they want God to bail them out when it fails. The third test I think deception's going by the way. This is where he's uncovering himself, he's taking the mask off. And he says, Taking, taking, uh, Satan taking Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You know, Jesus didn't say to him, Satan, you don't have that authority. They don't belong to you. He didn't say that. So he must have that authority at least for now. He's like saying, Jesus, look, these are all going to be yours anyway. Why don't you just go ahead and worship me? I'll give them to you. You don't have to go to the cross. You'll get all these nations. You'll be in charge. I can do it for you. You're going to do it anyway. Do it now. You don't have to go through all that pain and suffering. You're the son of God. Do it now. Take it. Take the kingdoms now. Well, what's he, what's he going to take? If he doesn't go to the cross, what are these kingdoms worth? Nothing. They're filled with sin, despair, distrust, dishonesty. But when he comes back, he's going to fix it. It's going to be better, it's going to be perfect. He'll remove sin, he'll make it perfect. It'll be a time of rejoicing and celebration. But he's going to have to go through that cross. Jesus knows that. If you are the son of God, what are you doing in this place? What are you doing here? Take it. Forget the pain. Consider who you are and where you come from. Of course, what did Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Be gone, Satan. Really uh, a powerful, powerful statement. Consider the response. Jesus showed right there and then he had authority over Satan. Now he comes back to after him again. But when he, when he uh, rises from the tomb, he has conquered that sin. We no longer have to worry about that if we're in Jesus. To forgive sin and restore people's relationship with the Father. He never lost sight of his mission. He never let his own personal need outweigh the Father's will. Can we learn something from that? Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So how do, we, uh, how do we deal with this? Well, knowing the word of God is a priority. We need to know it. We need to understand it. We need to use it in our daily lives. But you know there's an attack on the word of God. Perhaps some of you have heard about the Bible that uh, China is rewriting the scripture. Maybe some of you have heard about that. They're going to rewrite the whole Bible. And it's going to substitute God, it's going to be substituted by the government or the state. So your worship, your loyalty, your, your obedience is to the government. Now, we don't know because it's all done in secrecy. We don't know what all they're going to do. But one little excerpt, at least they claim has slipped out, has to do with passage where the woman's caught in adultery. And I, I think we had a speaker a couple of weeks ago or so talked about that, that passage of scripture. You know, she's brought to Jesus. And Jesus says, who's there to condemn you? And no one is. Well, I don't condemn you either. Just go forth and sin no more. But in the Chinese version, Jesus leads the stoning of this woman to death because her act was a betrayal, a rebellion against the government, the God. Those are the types of things that as Christians we need to be aware of and guard against and guard our hearts. 2 Timothy says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But now people say, well, it must be relevant to my needs, or I'll disregard it. Or there's some parts of it, well, that author was biased or bigoted. We'll ignore that part. Actually, heard a pastor, not from around here, from another state, say that he never uses the passages of Scripture that Paul wrote because Paul was a bigoted man and we can't trust his words. All Scripture, not just the part that seems culturally relevant, deception, lies deception because of lies can lead to temptations where those temptations come from they come from here according to James come from within so we battle it we battle it with the word of God we battle it with prayer and we battle it together as a church be aware of what the world offers. Pay attention to what's going on. Jesus says, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. That's kind of a strange thing. Shrewd as serpents. Shrewdness, sometimes that kind of has a negative connotation because it just almost seems negative. But you couple that with innocent as doves and you balance that. I I like to think it's wise and kind. Don't be fooled, but don't be ornery about it either. We require a balance, we require each other. Thank the Lord, we have a Savior who can balance it all out. Do not be deceived.
1: Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. God, so often uh, when we believe the lies, we fall into temptation. Thank you for speaking through Steve this morning to to show us... um, what your son went through and how he was tempted three times God but Lord showed us how to stay true to your word to to fight against it to not fall into temptation but allow you to work through us and by knowing your word and, and staying together as a community as a, as a church God a, a loving body who needs you and God when we fall short and you're there for us and your grace and forgiveness is is immediately available God but Lord would you help us repent when we do fall short, and we do fall into the temptations. Father, thank you for the wisdom that you gave Steve this morning. Thank you for the word, and would you allow it to change our hearts when we leave this place? We'll be so full of you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.